This is Scott. This is Rebecca. And we're the CEOs of Hardy, Party of Five. And a half. It's not really a company, it just sounds cool. And if you're looking for a normal family, well, you've certainly come to the wrong place. So keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times and let's see where this roller coaster takes us. Hey, Scott. Hey, Rebecca. How's it going? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Today's the day. Today's the day. I've been waiting for this one. Yes, you have been so excited because this is an interview with like one of your biggest man crushes. Yeah, top five man crush today. Top five? Wow. I think so, yeah. That's huge. Yeah. So it, what's exciting <laughs> is that we just had a giveaway um, last on our last podcast, and we are about to have another giveaway. We are? We are. Whoa. Here is what we're giving away. So we cool. Have, we have three of these books. Yep. This guy right here, Eric Weinmeyer, he's on our podcast today. Yeah, it is the most fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed it. I was finally like so happy to get to meet your man crush finally. Yeah, and I was right about everything, wasn't it? Yes, you yes. were totally right about everything. Yeah, um, this podcast is also available on YouTube. So if you want to see a video of this book I'm holding up, you should click on over to YouTube and watch it there. It's also signed. Yeah, yes, and Eric, we have three of them. Eric sent them out for us. He's yes. gracious enough yes. to do that, and it is so good. He also has a documentary called The Weight of Water. Mm-hmm. It's on Amazon. And then this wonderful book. And this book is also an organization called No Barriers. So we're going to jump right in with a video of Eric's awesome things he's done, climbing Mount Everest and kayaking the Grand Canyon. Watch this video and then listen to our awesome conversation with Eric. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Yeah, I'm just uh, catching up. Um, I was in Scotland for two weeks. I dropped my son off in, at college and I oh, said, I'm going to treat myself to a fun trip. So I went and uh, biked across Scotland with my tandem bike. Oh my goodness. And then, wow. uh, and then we went climbing on the north coast of Scotland with my friend Timmy O'Neill and uh, some local friends. And um, we climbed these, what they're called sea stacks. They're like these big. Yeah sandstone towers that jut right out of the north atlantic so they're really crazy some of them you have to swim to oh my god yeah so this is arjun right that's arjun yeah, yeah. So and arjun so just left for college yeah where's he going to school he's going to university of vermont so um i was psyched when he picked that because i love vermont it's so pretty up there and great biking and great climbing and amazing ice climbing in the winter so yeah. Um, it's, I'm being very selfish when I say uh, I'm <laughs> school there. I think he was thinking that, um, you know, Vermont, uh, Burlington is a little bit similar to near where we live, which is, a, which is near Boulder. So oh, yeah. it's kind of Boulder East. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're in Golden, right? Yeah. I'm in Golden, which is like 20 miles, maybe south of Boulder. Yeah. Maybe 15 miles from Denver. And it's a beautiful little community in the foothills. Front range of Colorado is getting pretty crowded, but uh, we have great biking and these cool little mesas that you can mountain bike on and pretty close to skiing and really good rock climbing. 
So mm-hmm. I mean, a little creek that runs right through town that rages in the spring. So it's good kayaking. So yeah, we got a lot of adventure to be had right around here. No, that's great. Golden is beautiful. We ventured through there once when I guess 70, I 70 was pretty full. We were trying to get to Keystone to ski and uh, we ended up taking a little detour through Golden. It is absolutely beautiful. Yeah, it's kind of cool. I like it. Yeah. I, I miss water though. There's not like you guys are in Fort Worth. There's a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of water in Colorado either. Lots, some rivers and stuff like that, but I miss oceans and you can't have it all though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, one of your major things that you've done is you you summited Mount Everest, which you were the first blind man to do that, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is crazy. Um, <laughs> so before we get into all that, tell us what was your childhood like and just how you grew up, where you grew up? and. Well, we kind of grew up around the world. Um, my dad was uh, working in a pharmaceutical company, and so they moved into Hong Kong. So I lived in Hong Kong for like five years when I was a little kid and I loved it. It was really exotic from my perspective, you know, and this cool Island and big mountains in the middle and um, really fun hiking. And we'd go out on this boat that we uh, rented uh, with a bunch of families. So we get it like once every couple months and it would, uh, they were called junks and there were these cool Chinese uh, boats that you'd go out sailing on the South China sea. So like I kind of grew up and got a taste of adventure uh, although I, it wasn't climbing, but it was definitely like exploring and what's around every corner. Then we moved back to Connecticut and it was just like, you know, hideously boring compared to Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah. Just sitting in the woods, you know, in a house. So we had to make our own fun. So, you know, I, I had a semi-normal childhood, you know, just running around through the forest, climbing cliffs um, in the forest, um, jumping off the devil's glen which was a big rock <laughs> that we would jump into this river and i couldn't see very well so i'd point my cane be like there and they'd be like no not there there no not there and i yeah. get it um in the middle they go there there that's where you want to land and so oh my <laughs> we did a lot of adventure things but like some of it was probably pretty reckless you know because you have to kind of grow into this idea of what adventure is and how do you yeah. assess risk and when you're a kid you're just you know, you don't do it that well. (laughs) (laughs) You just kind of throw yourself out there. So yeah, Yeah, exactly. We would jump out of, off our roofs and out of trees, like over big piles of rocks and land in leaves. I mean, we did like really dumb stuff, but you're kind of pliable when you're a kid. So it's, it's, it works. Right. So you completely lost your eyesight in high school, maybe ninth grade, I think. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I was losing sight. I was born with this congenital eye disease. So I knew I was going blind, but I mean, I just pushed it away. You know, I mean, people are are like, you know, you're the kind of guy that just turns into the the adversity and attacks it head on. I'm like, well, sometimes, (laughs) I mean, not always. When I was a kid, I just tried to ignore it and pretend it didn't, it wasn't going to happen. It was like this this death sentence. I didn't really even understand what blindness would be like. And so I just would turn to my friends and play in the woods and, uh, and, and try to fit in, you know, and then, yeah, freshman year, a week before I started my freshman year, I went fully blind, totally blind. Like I couldn't take a step. And that was like, okay, now I'm really blind. This is my life. This is freaking crazy. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and so, yeah, no, I was kind of a, angry little in Connecticut we had these raccoons that would uh break in through your screen and they would eat your garbage and that you'd come in in the middle of the night in the kitchen and they'd be like snarling at you in the corner and uh I was basically one of those little angry raccoons for a couple (laughs) years yeah snarling at the world going you know leave me alone you know so what made you finally decide to move on and have a life with no barriers well I mean I mean, essentially you're like looking at this brick wall and you don't know how to break through it. You don't know what your life's going to be like. And, you know, and you, you don't know if you're going to ever have friends or girlfriends or, you know, they're just thinking about never going to be able to drive a car. And, and, uh, and so I did a lot of searching, you know, like, I, I don't know what my life looks like. And, and, and uh, so I wasn't, I was such a pragmatist. I wasn't really worried about like not being able to see beautiful sunsets and Van Gogh paintings. 
Although nowadays, I think that'd be really cool to be able to see those things. But I was more concerned with what I was going to miss out on. Mm -hmm. I've always had this kind of FOMO disease, fear <laughs> missing out. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I was a kid, like my brothers were going fishing and uh, I stood on the dock and uh, the, the guy wasn't going to take me out. And, uh, and somehow it occurred to my dad, he was standing there saying goodbye. And he's like, did you want to go? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and so he shoved me out there on the boat and um, I, mean, I caught more fish than my brothers and my brothers, <laughs> one of them was seasick and one of them had to pee. I think he almost peed in his pants and <laughs> I was having a great time. And, and then, you know, so I just, I wanted to be a part of things. I hated being on the sidelines. I think that's probably universal for a lot of people who suffer a disability. Hmm. You're, you're, you know, you want to experience life, right? You realize, okay, probably just maybe I have one life in front of me and what, and, and, and all the things I envisioned of my life are now dashed. It's like, I'm, I'm going to be sitting on the sidelines, listening to life go by this life. That's just meaningless. That's, that's passive. And uh, even though I couldn't express that at the time, I think that was my greatest fear. Well, you did eventually go on to have a girlfriend and I guess she turned into your wife named oh, Ellie. Yeah. And then you have a daughter named Emma. And then of course we already spoke of Arjun, yeah. um, who is, he's adopted from where? We adopted Arjun from Nepal. Okay. Yeah. From Nepal. Yeah. Um, previously we spoke about our son that does all the extreme sports and he's also adopted. So we share that love together. Yeah. Um, yeah. So how does Ellie and your children, like, how do they, how do they manage you in extreme sports? I mean, do they just worry all the time? Are they just used to it? How do they react to this? Oh, they're like, whatever. It's <laughs> going off again. Yeah. yeah. What are you doing now? My son will yeah. be like, where were you? I'm like, I was in Scotland climbing huge rock faces. He's like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> you know, so, so totally no surprise becomes, anymore. Yeah. None it becomes totally surprise. normal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about, yeah. what about at first? I mean, when you first told her you were going to climb Mount Everest, like. Well, I, mean, I had been, you know, so I was a teacher for six years and I could have taught forever. I could, I could have, I loved it. I was teaching sighted kids at a school, a middle school. I taught English and math. Um, but I, I got into climbing. Um, I went climbing the first time at, in this rehabilitation center and they like taught you how to use a cane and learn braille but they also had a rec program and so at the time blind people left were left out of ball sports and like in pe class mm -hmm. so i um my dad would drive me three hours up to this rec program for the blind and i really liked the group and one weekend they took us rock climbing and i loved it i was it was physical it was it it was problem solving it was full engagement it was just like a lot of sweating and grunting and bleeding and <laughs> and uh and it was connecting your life and fate with another human being. And I thought that this is really cool. And so at the time in Arizona, when I was teaching, um, I got connected with this substitute guy, a teacher, and he was a climber and we started climbing together. And, uh, and so it led to, you know, bigger and bigger uh, rock faces and, and eventually to ice climbing and eventually to paragliding and eventually to climbing Mount Everest. And uh, uh, so it was a slow process of you know yeah. figuring out okay what do I want to do I had this dream to climb the seven summits the tallest peak in every continent and so uh, that was exciting to you know your whole life to be this great adventure just traveling around the world but anyway I left teaching and and uh, decided you know with the help of my dad and some friends that said they'd help me figure it out um, I I became a full-time adventurer uh, and I've been the last 25 years making a living speaking and, uh, and climbing and endorsements and blah, 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 books, yeah. movies, films. <laughs> yeah. um, it's been really, it's been really eclectic and really fun and exciting, but the family, um, yeah, I mean, it is hard on the family. Uh, one time I, I woke up and I was like, oh, my knee is killing me. If it gets any worse, I'm not going to be able to climb. And I think my wife said, good. <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, it's hard. You know, you leave for months at a time. I mean, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's hard on the family. I mean, you know, any yeah. kind of occupation is hard. You know, some people go off to work and are gone all day and come home late at night. For me, it's, I go home, I, I'm home, 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 home. And then I leave for a month or two and then I'm yeah. back home again. So yeah. it's, it's really a different uh, family experience for sure. Mm -hmm. 
So I was listening to the 20th anniversary you had on your podcast, the Everest team back together. Yeah. And just one of the things that really struck me is how tight knit your group is, like your friends and your team members. And obviously with the things you do, you have to have like 100% confidence and trust in them. So I was just wondering what qualities do you look for in people and how do you just cultivate this much trust in each other when you're doing these things? Well, one is, I mean, there's not like this perfect prescription to the people that you attract, but I mean, I do think we're sort of like, you know, planetary bodies or something. We Mm. attract things into our orbit. And I've just been unbelievably fortunate to attract amazing people into my orbit. I, I guess I'm doing something right. Maybe they (laughs) sense the fact that I have gratitude, that I'm I'm really appreciative. I'm, I'm really hungry to learn and grow and experience life. And maybe it's, you know, people who like PV, our team leader on Everest, you know, he'd, he had tried to climb Everest twice. He had finally reached the summit, I think his third try maybe. Um, and so he had a lot of experience and he came up to me at this outdoor show and he said, he's like, you know, I told him about myself and he said, Hey, you ever think of climbing Everest? And I was like, <laughs> well, yeah. And he's like, you need a leader. I'll lead you up there. And he's like, I'm like, yeah, cool, bro, dude. And he's like, yeah, bro. And, you know, we do a lot of bros and a lot of dudes in the yeah. world. <laughs> And, um, and so the next thing you know, we were planning this trip and, um, you know, and that's really what it took for me because I needed a good, good, strong team around me. So we started building this team of people that PV knew and then friends that I trusted. Um, and we had this incredible team by the end and yeah, we, we've stayed great friends. We had our 20th anniversary experience where we got together for the weekend and hung out and watched movies and, and went climbing and we're still like brothers and sisters as, as we get older, 20 years down the road. So how long does it, how long did the journey to, from starting the Everest climb to making it to the summit? How long does something like that take? Well, I went blind at 14 and then I climbed the first time at 16 and then 16 years later, I was climbing Everest. So half my life training, I guess, for yeah. this experience. Wow two years of intense physical training to get ready for Everest and climbing other peaks around the world. Yeah. And then the experience itself is probably close to three months, door to door, two and a half, three months, door to door. Um, You know, you get to Kathmandu, you spend a week like kind of organizing and unpacking and getting everything organized. And then you eventually fly on up to the Kumbu, uh, which is the valley that leads you up to Everest. And uh, that's about a 10 day trek. And then you have to rest when you get to base camp because you're at 17 and a half thousand feet and you're, mm-hmm. you're feeling like crap because um, <laughs> you're, you haven't acclimatized yet. So you got to kind of spend a week and then you start making these forays up the Kumbu Icefall, which is right out of base camp. It's probably the most treacherous place. It's for probably the most people that have died on the South Coal um, because it's just this incredibly unstable labyrinth of ice all shifting and moving and exploding and collapsing under your feet with every step could honestly kill you Serac's exploding and collapsing and crushing people and it's very volatile ground it's like a river of ice that's uh that's that's kind of moving down the mountain so i mean that to me was just the most intense thing i'd ever experienced and and so eventually you make it through the full ice fall 2000 feet and then you start setting up your higher camps and uh, you, you make it all the way up to camp three usually. And then you come on back down to way down to 14,000 feet, which seems like, you know, tropics at that point. And you rest <laughs> for like four days and you, you, you kind of like, it's funny, like cuts start to heal at that 14,000 foot level, you know, at 17,000 or 18,000 feet cuts, you'll cut your finger and it'll, it'll just ooze and bleed for a month or two it won't ever heal because there's not enough oxygen to really sustain life up there they call it the death zone so anyway you get down to 14 you supercharge and you charge back up the mountain feeling so good you've just been able to breathe four days of oxygen Mm -hmm. so why do you come back down to 14 is that just the way it is or you intentionally come back down you intentionally come down to 14,000 feet because you're because there's so much more oxygen down there you kind of supercharge Okay. recharge and, your body okay. so you have um, you to fill that. your body full of oxygen <laughs> yeah. and then you go back up the mountain you just feel like a rock star 
<laughs> but it's the slow process of acclimatization where you're, you know, teaching, training your body how to breathe less and less oxygen. And, uh, you know, like they say, you know, I don't know, like if you just helicoptered onto the top of Everest, you know, within a minute, you'd pass out and die. Oh, wow. You yeah. know? So, so you have to kind of train your body to be able to, you know, you're building hemoglobin in your body that uh, is able to absorb more oxygen. Yeah, I almost pass out at the top of Pikes Peak. So this is probably a big <laughs> well, no yeah. for me. Everyone yeah. feels lightheaded at the top of Pikes Peak or yeah. any other 14ers in Colorado. Yeah, I, I feel faint. I feel like I'm, you know, like that kind of where you feel the world kind of just swaying in front of you. Yeah, yeah. I mean that, yeah it's, 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 it's like that, you know? Yeah. So can you give us an idea of what it felt like to like stand on the top of the world? What was, what was that moment like when you got to the top? Well, I mean, the typical thing that you want might think is that you stand on top and, you know, you like pound your chest and, and you're <laughs> like, I've done it and my life has changed forever. But really nothing happens on a summit. You stand on this little cold lump of ice, uh, which is an island in the sky. And um, you take a few pictures and you hug your friends and you hold the flag and do you... Uh, you you feel the crampons biting into the snow under your feet and the wind in your face and a little bit of sun if you're lucky <laughs> and uh and you sense the sound vibrations for me being blind i i listen to sound vibrations i listen mm -hmm. to the, it's called echolocation and so you listen to the sound that you're making under you know with your crampons in the snow and just whatever sounds are out there they float out into the atmosphere and often in life the um, sounds will bounce off of objects and come back at you. But in the summit of Everest, the sounds just move out infinitely through space. Uh, mm -hmm. I've described it as feeling like being swallowed by sky. Um, so wow. it's a really intense, awe-inspiring, beautiful, scary moment. But at the same time, you got to get down because, you know, the hardest work is going down the mountain. Going up, you know, believe it or not, it's physically exerting, but going down is way, way more dangerous. So really. Um, yeah, you 90% of accidents happen on the way down when you're tired. And if you fall down the mountain, you're going to tumble forever. So, um, so how really all your it, skills come into play when it, when it matters, when you're coming down. How long does it take you to get to 14? To, to, uh, like 14,000 from the top. Oh, all the way back down. Um, it takes like three or four days. Oh, yeah, because you kind of do this death march when you're going downhill. You just go down, 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 down. Yeah. So, yeah, I think you make it to the South Coal, uh, which is a high camp. And then you come all the way down to the on down the Lotsey face and down to camp two. And then you go all the way to base camp and then you kind of organize and pack. And then you head a couple more days, these huge death marches all the way down to where you can fly out of the Kumbu. It honestly sounds like there's so many small victories going up and coming yeah. down. Like you probably celebrate a lot of along the way of things that you've just accomplished the ice river and things like that. Oh yeah. I mean, cause you cross through the Kumu ice fall 10 times. You don't cross through yeah. it once. You don't just get through it wow. once and go, Whoa, I got through you. You got to go up and down and up and down and up and down. And wow. uh, so like my first time through the Kumu ice fall uh, took me 13 hours. I mean, that's way too long to be in the Kumu ice fall. Cause as I said, it's so volatile yeah. in there. Mm -hmm. Things are collapsing and stuff. And so my team was really worried about me. They're like, you know, he's spending way too much time getting through the ice fall. Um, wow. So um, after the 10th time up and down, uh, <laughs> I broke five hours. So you're just getting stronger and stronger if you have, you know, the right team and you prepare the right way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So when you finally made it, your team leader, Pascal, said something to you that I think really impacted your life from then on. And he's, he, he just said, don't let Everest be the greatest thing you do. So how did you react to that when he first said it? And then how did that change your life afterwards? Well, I mean, you come down through the Kumbu Ice Fall and you're finally safe, you know? You're like, wow, I'm safe. Like I, yeah. I remember drinking a beer at 17,000 feet. And I was just like, <laughs> whoa, my head is spinning big time. This may not have been a great idea, but you're just so happy you're in celebrate, celebration mode, you know? And um, so PV pulls me aside and, you know, I think he's like just going to give me a hug and congratulate me and I'll sign his baseball cap or something. But <laughs> he said, um, Eric, do me a favor. He said, uh, don't let Mount Everest be the greatest thing you ever do. And it came out of the blue kind of. And I was like, well, 
I mean, PV, first of all, that's poorly timed advice because I want to go home. <laughs> I've lost 40 pounds and I want to go home and drink hazelnut lattes and eat chocolate croissants and <laughs> hear my daughter, you know, play in the park, you know, and feel the sun on my face in Colorado. Um, but I mean, what he was really saying, I think, and over time was he was saying, uh, I guess something similar to what David Brooks, you know, the columnist and thinker says, he says, you know, is this a, is this a resume virtue or is this like a life virtue? You know, it's like, what, what are you doing this for? Is it to, to put the trophy on the shelf or the picture on the wall? And then like, you know, just make it something that you did, you know, something for your resume, or is this going to become an experience that matters, that's valuable, that, that means something that propels you forward and helps you learn something new about life and your, your own life in the world and propels you forward to some new discovery. So everything, every experience is a catalyst that, that pushes you forward to something new and it wasn't, he was saying like something scarier or riskier or bolder, Well, he was just saying something that again is meaningful at yeah. that time of life. And so it was amazing advice because that mindset, you know, led me to all kinds of things, kayaking and, and Arjun, adopting Arjun and starting No Barriers. I mean, we just had our, I don't know, like our 15th, a big annual event called our summit. And it was a in-person and virtual kind of a hybrid event. We had 7 million views from all around the world. That's um, amazing. 50 countries, every state in the U.S. represented. Um, it was, it's just so powerful to have one experience lead to the next and, and, and figure out what your place is. Mm -hmm. Well, Scott and I both just finished your book, No Barriers, yeah. um, which is where I, I read a lot about Arjun in that book. Um, yeah. And it, you talk, this chronicles your events of you've lived off the mountain now and now you're in the water and you're going to solo kayak the Grand Canyon. So tell us a little bit about that training. I was fascinated by the different things you, you attempted there. And then of course, Lava Falls and all of that. So tell us like a, a little bit about the training that went into that. Sure. And just how different that, that was a flip on what you'd been doing for sure. Well, it's a bit of a misnomer to say I was soloing the Grand Canyon. Like I was in my own boat, but I had an amazing team around me, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and so they're great. I had this, I've always had great teams. Uh, I, I was on an ice face, actually. It was about the time when I was trying to adopt Arjun, and we're having all sorts of challenges with red tape and bureaucracy. And uh, there's a civil war going on in Nepal um, where, um, you know, the, 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 the Maoists took over. And they stopped all adoptions. And so I was struggling to bring him home. And, uh, and we headed up to the Kumbua uh, to climb this big vertical ice face called Losar. And it was really exciting, but we were bivvied. We were sleeping on the side of the ice fall of the ice face. And uh, wind was just hammering down in these flimsy sleeping bags. We all had like a little tiny packet of soup. We were like hungry and like so cold. I'm like hallucinating, you know, and um, and uh, it was in that experience that Rob was like, hey, you know, kayaking is pretty awesome. It's like in the sunshine, you have <laughs> rafts that can carry beer and stuff behind you. You don't have to carry everything on your back. It's, you know, it's pretty fun. You might want to, you know, maybe we should, you know, see if I can teach you a combat role. And I was like, yeah, I'd always wanted to do that. So it was just this very organic thing. We got home and Rob taught me how to do a combat role within a couple hours. I had the shaky role. And then uh, I said, hey, Rob, what do you say? Like, maybe teach me, you know, maybe you could guide me down a couple easy rivers. Yeah. And of course, it started over again, this, <laughs> this process of, you know, starting over with all questions, very few answers. And then we just worked our way through the process together, kind of trying to engineer ideas and guiding techniques and mm -hmm. how the team would work and support me. And uh, yeah, after six years, of training i thought i was ready for the grand canyon we left for the grand canyon and yeah i had a successful descent down the grand canyon uh, i think it took us 20 days to kayak the whole grand canyon 277 miles wow now in the book you mentioned that there's there's a farmer that went with you lonnie can you tell me just tell us a little bit about lonnie because he was cracking me up in the book he's just a funny guy oh lonnie's amazing um yeah uh so 
you know, I had met other blind adventurers. Like I, in the book, I wrote about this cool experience meeting Andy Holzer, who's this Austrian blind guy. <laughs> I was climbing in the Dolomites and I was up a couple thousand feet up this face. And my friend says, Eric, you're not going to believe it. There's another blind guy on this ledge. Like what? Anyway, <laughs> guy Andy Holzer, he's making a documentary. Look at this blind guy climb this massive face in the Dolomites and randomly another blind guy pops into the film and we're, we climbed the rest of the face together and we became good friends. And anyway, so when I was kayaking, um, I heard that there was this other blind guy that was a good kayaker. And uh, he had been uh, down the Grand Canyon before, like, but he hadn't finished it. You know, he, he'd gotten off like maybe 50 miles shy of the end of the canyon. Mm-hmm. And so I said, I like this guy. Let's, I met him. We kayaked together and I invited him on my trip. So the two of us, um, we're kayaking together and we, and his name is Lonnie Bedwell. Yes. He's a farmer from Duggar, Indiana. He's an amazing guy. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I gave him a a life vest, like a PFD, which is um, from one of our sponsors. Um, You obviously have a a life vest that uh, Mm -hmm. you wear around you when you're in these giant waves and rapids. And so on one of our trainings, I gave Lonnie um, a, a PFD or a life vest and he, he didn't have enough room in his bag. So he wore it home. He wore it home on the plane. <laughs> and uh, and so he's in his overalls, his boots, his cowboy boots and his PFD around him in the seat. And he said, the lady next to him asked him very tentatively, like, why are you wearing a life vest on this plane? He's like, just in case of a water landing. So, uh, he's prepared. So Lonnie you know? is a trip. He is a, he is nuts. I mean, <laughs> going into like horn, you know, these big rapids and I'm just like terrified. My fear level is at like a nine out of 10. I go, Lonnie, what's your, what's your fear level? He'd be like about a two. <laughs> I'm just like, what's wrong with you, dude? Yeah. So yeah, was, but I loved Lonnie. He's, he and he's so a really good that. kayaker. On the documentary, he was in the documentary a lot. And I mean, yeah, he was very much like, yeehaw, let's do this. <laughs> yeehaw. I know. See, I'm just like, people have a misperception of me, I think, because they think, oh, he's a big adventurer. He's like fearless. No, I'm scared of everything. When I was a kid, I was paralyzed by fear. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think that's partly why I was been fascinated by what does this process look like where we move forward and we, we try to figure out how we're going to grow and evolve and connect with other people in the world and live, you know, a no barriers life. Yeah. Uh, Cause it didn't come so easy for me. Mm -hmm. So how is it different, like being on a mountainside and being in the water? Because it seemed like when I was reading the book that there was a lot more fear in the water than you had on the mountainside. So why was the water, why did being kayaking like well, generate that much? Yeah. I mean, mountain climbing, sure. If there's an avalanche or something, it's big trouble, right? But I mean, you're just plodding very slowly up the mountain, moving slowly. You can't move that fast at, at high altitude. And so even very technical things, I'm pretty strong, pretty fit. So like I can hang on to a rock or hang on to an ice climb with my tools and kind of just pick my way forward through that difficult experience, kind of use some mindset to like kind of cocoon yourself in a sense of well-being, you know, even though the mountains raging around you. And I'd kind of learned to do that. But then I got into the river and one, obviously you can drown, you can slam into things. You're moving really fast. You're moving at the pace of the river. The, 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 the ground is moving underneath you. There's four dimensions. There's a whole nother dimension moving under your, under your boat. And you're, and it's very reactionary. You're reacting as a blind kayaker to like things that you can't see coming. So waves are just hammering you left and right. And it's it's like a dance, but it's also like going into the ring with Mike Tyson. I'm dating myself, Mike Tyson, <laughs> boxing a long time, but we got you. <laughs> yeah, but um, so yeah, you're asserting yourself in certain ways to be able to make the right moves and and get in the right places of the river. But you're also reacting and just saying, okay, I got to ride this massive energy, and and I have to be okay with that. Uh, and so that was really hard for my sort of German controlling nature, I think, uh, just in a way, letting go and having f- a kind of faith in yourself and in your team that if you charge and you're aggressive and through that rapid nine times out of 10, you're going to get through it, but there's no certainty. And so that was just all hard. You know, that's why I entitled our documentary, 
and a chapter of my book with the weight of water because it is a weight right it, all these fears and anxieties and am i good enough am i going to let my team down did i just get lucky on everest and it, you know is this i define myself as this hero and now maybe i'm not the guy i wanted to be you know all that stuff um kind of becomes like crust or like a layer and it removes you from the experience so a lot of that story was about kayaking for sure but it was also about trying to de-layer <laughs> trying yeah, to yeah. fully authentically experience something and grow and learn from it uh and 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 not be like a person who watches their life through a window you know into the mm -hmm. scene yeah it's and kind of get to the core of who you are really the experience is proving who you are to yourself exactly yeah, yeah. And, and and uh uh, and and seeing if you can the possibility of seeing if you can flourish in that environment yeah i'd say i flourished in the grand canyon from time to time sometimes <laughs> you're surviving but man it sure feels good when you flourish when you get into that flow that zone where you're just like i'm connecting here i'm not like this sort of scared guy you know mm -hmm. that's that's fighting his way down the river like i'm i'm a part of this environment and it's beautiful it becomes this really beautiful powerful connection Hmm. but it's a lot of work to get there yeah oh i can imagine and Our it's system. years of training and seconds of that feeling uh, wow yeah and i'm i was impressed with um you were talking about the echoes and uh when you were on the mountain but i remember in your documentary you were um just hearing how the water comes off the side of the canyon or the what the rocks on the other side and how you're just so in tune to that and how that helped you kind of navigate where you needed to go. And I mean, that's just things yeah. that pass us by. Well, you know, echolocation is something blind people use. You listen to objects bouncing off of, you know, excuse me, sound bouncing off of objects and coming mm -hmm. back at you. But in a river, like in a canyon, you know, the, there's so many sounds. You're trying to decipher so much. It's like sounds are just ricocheting everywhere, oh, yeah. you know, and bouncing off the water and bouncing off the walls, bouncing off of rocks. It's really tricky. It's so hard to react and understand as a blind person mm -hmm. uh, how to orient yourself just by, you know, what you're hearing, what you're feeling under your boat, and what you're, what my my, my friends are yelling at me through the radios. Um, yeah. It's it's really tricky. Um, uh, but I remember going and scouting lava falls, and you walk up on the side of the river, and you're right, like kind of looking down at lava. And the sound there is the deepest roaring. It's like um, a monster just roaring from the depths of the earth. And you're like, holy shit, I'm about to go into that. <laughs> it's, it's, lava terrifying. Falls is the, it's the last feature, right? Lava Falls, is, is that the it's, last? Well, it's not the last feature, but it's the last big feature. It's oh, 10 so out of 10 in the Grand Canyon. That's 10, that's right. You can yeah. get wrecked after that. But no, yeah. once people get through lava, they're like, they're kind of up. That's the summit. And now they're kind of, descending down the mountain if if you will yeah right so now the first time you went through lava it didn't go quite as planned so talk about like when you didn't make it all the way through and you decided to go back and do it again i mean well you know kayaking is different from climbing in the fact that like part of the success for me felt like i wanted to stay in my boat yeah um being out of your boat and swimming blind through a rapid is like the worst thing you want to do. Mm -mm. Um, so it's really dangerous. So you want to yeah. stay in your boat. And so you kind of create this definition of what success looks like. And it's very personal. I mean, but for me, it was being in my boat. And so the first time through Lava Falls, I didn't have such a good run. I just, I think I, I built up so much weight and pressure in myself. Um, that I I I, I kind of just fall fell apart a little bit. Usually, I think I rise to the occasion, but in this instance, I think I was just overwhelmed by fear and and sort of uh, I, I almost remember feeling like lethargic, like trying to take deep breaths, trying to get energy into my body, and and I rode the slip down into lava, and I hit the first boil, and I reacted too slowly, and I was upside down. Uh, and I rolled back up and I just, from there, it just, uh, it was a, uh, a cascading series of 
being worse and worse and worse. So I, uh, you know, the, these giant waves come together called the V wave that knocked me over. I rolled up. I was going into these giant waves called the big kahuna waves backwards. I was getting wrecked. Um, um, Harlan um, put his paddle up against one of these big waves. He was my guide in lava and it busted his carbon fiber paddle in half and knocked him over. So he's upside down. He's not able to communicate with me. So I'm just like getting wrecked in the kahuna waves going, where is Harlan? I don't hear anything. Where am I? Like, am I off? Am I getting crushed against the rocks Canyon? Like, you know, to the point where I'm going to drown. And I panicked and I pulled my skirt and I swam blind through lava falls. So that was my first experience. So you can say you swam lava falls and then you went back and actually kayaked lava falls. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I got down. You actually, when you, when you finish, when you swim, um, there's this tradition in kayaking where you drink a booty beer and yeah. uh, <laughs> you, you guys know this, but yeah, you, yeah. you take yeah. your stinky, musty, waterlogged <laughs> booty off your foot and people pour <laughs> beer into it. And then the shot of whiskey, and you have to drink it out of your own boot. And it's, <laughs> and so I did that, but I just was so, I felt so sad because I, I, created expectations around this trip you know and and I wanted to flourish in this environment you know I didn't want to just squeak by by the skin of my teeth you know like for me these adventures are about sort of figuring out what's within you and how do you flourish how do you how do you figure out the possibilities of 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 something and and take it you know as far as you can so just surviving lava, people are like, you should be psyched. You, you survived. You didn't drown. You swam through, but who cares? You're past it. And I was like, no, I, something I, I care. Have, yeah. I have to go back. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So I woke up out of my tent the next morning in Harlan. I said, hey, Harlan, what do you think? I, maybe this is a dumb idea. Maybe this is a crazy idea, but maybe like, what, what could I, is it possible to do lava again? And he's like, <laughs> I was hoping you'd say that. and so we hiked back up and we ferried across the river which was even crazy i wanted to back out just ferrying across the river that's like pointing your boat upstream and angling your boat to the point where you can kind of like shoot across the current and i was just getting hammered i think i even got knocked over ferrying across the river because you have to get to the other side of the river so that you can hike again up to the uh, top of lava and i was just having second thoughts and Anyway, but I, I mustered the courage and, um, and I remember my second run just being sure I was scared, but, you know, I had done it once before I knew what the consequences were. And I said, you know, I got to let go some of that weight. I just gotta, I, I, I gotta sort of connect with this moment. And, and, and so I remember under the fear um there was a sense of connection and there was a sense of gratitude and that's what i remember as my second trip through lava just sort of feeling joy and love for my team and connection and 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 gratitude for just being there being able to be in such an amazing place yeah that's awesome um and you mentioned earlier the no barrier summit can you give us uh tell us about what the no barriers organization is and uh, what what's its mission? What's your mission with No Barriers? Well, you know, PV said, don't make Everest be the greatest thing you ever do. And so um, that led to all kinds of cool stuff. You know, um, uh, it, I got a call out of the blue by this guy, um, Mark Wellman, who was one of my heroes at the time. He's still one of my heroes. He's a paraplegic who was the first paraplegic to climb El Capitan. He did this 3000 foot vertical overhanging climb by basically doing pull-ups up the rope. <laughs> they estimated he did over 7,000 pull-ups oh, in eight days. Wow. So he was world famous. You know, he met the president and, you know, he lit the torch at the Paralympics and I mean, he was the man. And, and then he said, I have another guy who's going to climb with us, Hugh Herr, who's a double leg amputee. Hugh runs the biomechatronics laboratory at MIT buildings, prosthetics that are just insanely sophisticated and trying to figure out how prosthetics and the human biology, them, you know, how they connect and how they work together 
seamlessly. So he's an amazing scientist, but he's also an amazing climber. Um, and he climbs with these prosthetic feet. And so the three of us got to the top of this tower outside of uh, Moab, Utah. And I just remember feeling so connected with these guys. Yeah, sure, we were all climbers and adventurers, but also it was really, I was more fascinated by how you life can kind of try to pulverize you and you have to kind of rebuild yourself and figure out how you're going to reclaim your life or reclaim something new uh, that you just could grasp with your fingertips and you didn't know exactly what that life looked like. And so I was really fascinated by that process of rebuilding, of healing, of growing, of moving forward. And so the three of us got together and started building this, what we call, I guess, a map or a template of how you do that. And uh, it became our no barriers curriculum that we teach to um, people with challenges. And when I say challenges, it's really eclectic. It's, you know, people who have physical challenges like me or Mark or Hugh, but also people with invisible challenges, anxiety, fear, mm-hmm. uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, kids who are first generation Americans and are trying to connect or kids in the foster care system who have just been beat down over and over and over. Um, injured soldiers, you know. Um, and so the idea behind no barriers is how do we figure out how to, you know, break through those barriers and elevate the world in some way. And so at the end of our courses, we have people take what we call no barriers pledge. It's like, what are you going to do with this now? Like PV asked me, what are you going to do with this? Yeah. Uh, so it's a pledge, you know, and we've had people write books and start nonprofits and get jobs and lose 150 pounds. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's amazing to see what comes out of these pledges. Yeah. That's so great. really you have done something greater than ever. <laughs> so I think so. Yeah, I think no definitely. barriers is my legacy. Yeah. I'm so sold on this work and I, and I'm so over the top about it because for me, you know, there's so much negative negativity in the world and so much like tribalism and stuff. And what no barriers is, it says like, we got to lean in, man, because it doesn't matter if you're blind or if you're a, a, a veteran or whether you're a kid in the foster care system or whether you're like a person, you know, working at a corporation, trying to, trying to bring an idea into the world, right? We're all, if we lean in at that macro level, we can help each other. We can lift each other up and we can, uh, we, we can really go a lot further than we could alone. Yeah. And so for me, it's about, you know, the connection of how do we support each other and how do we help each other problem solve and break through those barriers mm. in the world as a community. I know Scott hopes to join you on a no barriers event. So yeah. Yeah. please. Love yeah. That. We, we have uh, dozens and dozens of programs, both virtual and in person, yeah. but we also have a big, a couple big events every year that people can attend. Yeah. And our son that lives about an hour from you probably would love that as well. Yeah. And we don't discriminate, right? Like anyone can join, right? Yeah. I mean, don't, people are always like, Oh, I don't, I'm not blind. I shouldn't join. I'm like, no, no, it's for everyone because it's, for everyone. it's an expansive definition of challenge. Yeah. Every human being has challenges. So everyone um, has a no barriers, a yearning that. for a no barriers life, I think. Yeah, mm. sure. So what's next? What's next for Eric? What's your vision for the future, personally, professionally? Where are you headed? Well, in terms of climbing, I mean, like I'm going to run out of cartilage before I, you know, <laughs> uh, before I climb like, you know, a third or a fourth or a fifth of the things I want to climb and, and, and kayak and do all kinds of big adventures. So I'm 52. So I have a couple years ahead of me <laughs> um, <laughs> climbing and doing really cool stuff, but I really would like to um, make no barriers, a household phrase. Mm-hmm. I really think the world needs it, you know, um, because the people, when you see real authentic people, like, you know, just bleeding and bleeding their way forward, you know, like it teaches you a lot about this process of growth. Mm-hmm. Um, the people that refuse to crawl under a rock and just say, this world's not a good place. It's just beat me down too many times. And you see people continually to kind of flail and bleed their way forward. And it's just to me, insanely inspiring. Yeah, it is. We talk to our kids a lot about when you, when you put yourself in in a box and when you build up walls around you of protection, like maybe you did when you were the angry right. teenager building the angry up raccoon. Walls. 
Yes, the angry <laughs> yeah. raccoon. You think you're protecting yourself, but you're really kind of putting yourself in a prison. And once you get on the other side of that wall, you see how freeing it is. It's a whole different world and you can be so much more vulnerable. It is scary to be vulnerable, but there's freedom on the other side of that wall that you that you built up. I am such a disciple of that, what you just said, because look, I don't want to put anyone down, but I think a lot of us do live in a prison. We do. Mm -hmm. I mean, we put bars around us. The world puts us there for sure. Yeah. But but we then you know, grow those bars even stronger <laughs> around mm -hmm. ourselves. Yeah. And so, yeah. Uh, so yeah, no barriers is, I think it taps into a lot of the stuff that companies and teams are working on now, which is inclusivity, right? Like how do we make the world an accessible place where everyone can contribute their full potential to, to life in the world and to living a meaningful life? Um, and how do we support people to be able to do that, to bring the best version of themselves into the world it's really, it's, it's the new frontier, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's a great, great message and a great mission. And Eric, you're just one of my favorite people. I met you, <laughs> gosh, eight or 10 years ago. I'm a graphics operator. So you came back to look at your slides and it was just so funny. Okay. Here's what I did when I met. I remember you. I had actual slides in a carousel back then, didn't I? <laughs> well, yeah, now it was, yeah. it was PowerPoint. It was, so, it was PowerPoint. Now we're yeah. pretty sophisticated. We, we, we use keynote and everything, but so, yeah, there was a day of, of being a dinosaur actually with like <laughs> slides and a carousel. Yeah. So when you came up to me, I said, Oh, it's good to see you. And I'm like, what did I just say? Uh, and then you were like, Oh, it's good to see you too. Yeah. So, yeah. and then fate as fate had it, I worked with you again, like very soon after that and you came up to me and said it's good to see you again scott uh -huh. so it just made me realize okay this is a good dude who's not i don't have it kind of like we talked about the walls coming down yeah it's like oh he's accessible i don't have to worry about yeah, what yeah. i say or no you don't yeah. it's hard to offend me i have two older <laughs> brothers um that, that yeah um i got a lot of beating so if i was yeah. sensitive i would have uh, i would have been in big trouble yes <laughs> such a pleasure for me to get to meet my one of my husband's biggest man crushes so. yeah nice. thank you eric <laughs> awesome really good to spend that hour with you too yes okay. we appreciate thank your you. message and we right. look forward to seeing what the future holds for you we're really excited about no barriers in that organization and we will definitely be keeping up with you awesome all right have a great okay. afternoon thanks okay, a lot thank eric. Bye. what an amazing way to end season three of our podcast what an amazing way he was I so know. fantastic incredible yes and so if you want one of these three copies of this signed book that we have by eric then you have to just sh share this podcast like just share it and tag right for your five and a half minute that's it we'll put you in a drawing we have three of these books to give away we're so excited to give away these it's a really good book we both read it right it's so good yep and you will not be disappointed you will want to jump right out and go like i don't know do something amazing climb like, a cliff or i mean even just like a small yeah. boulder in the backyard go to your swimming pool <laughs> go down deep just dive to the bottom and back to 100 you know something 100. yeah you'll want to do something amazing something amazing and you will he's very inspiring yep eric gets you fired up and yeah just ready to go yep. attack life. So like and share this podcast today yep. and tag us in at Party Party Five and a Half and you'll be entered for a drawing for one of these three books and we will get that right in the mail state, right? Yes, we will. That's right. Party Party Five and a Half over and out. We'll see you next time. Bye.